Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, if you're uh, visiting with us this morning here at Bloomfield, we walk through the Scripture uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we've been walking through the book of Hebrews for some time now, and uh, we've just finished up chapter 9, and if you're not familiar with it, chapter 9 of Hebrews ends uh, with a reminder of the first coming of Christ and the eager anticipation of the second coming of Christ. Now, the Bible teaches that Jesus most certainly did come in the world, that the eternal Son of God was made flesh and came to dwell among us. We see that in the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Uh, the Bible also teaches that Jesus will return again. And the scripture tells us he will come uh, to judge those who have not trusted in him and he will come to save those who have. And uh, that's what we uh, consider and what we celebrate during this Advent season as we look back on the first coming of Christ and as we look ahead to the second coming of Christ. And so it's very fitting uh, that during the season of Advent that we come to Hebrews chapter 10 uh, because, as I've mentioned, the writers just talked about uh, eagerly anticipating that second coming. And now in chapter 10, verse 5, he talks about Christ coming into the world. And so this is a, a text that speaks of the Incarnation and so I think it's very fitting that we look at it during this time of year. So we're going to look today at Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10, and at a reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read this text for us. This is what God's Holy Word says, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to have been offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When He said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You would pray with me. Father, as we come to this text and this chapter, there are so many great truths here about the coming of Jesus. There is so much here to remind us of what a, a great treasure it is we have in the gospel. And yet, Lord, it is very easy for us to miss what God, your word says. It's easy for us to miss that treasure. It's easy for us to settle for the petty things of this world. We are so easily distracted and we are so easily satisfied with things that pale in comparison to the riches of your gospel. So Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do through the power of your Holy Spirit 
that, that you would open up eyes to see and minds to understand and believe, hearts to respond to your word today. Help us to see the riches of Christ, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, just to echo what Pastor Matt mentioned earlier, appreciate everybody who helped out with the Christmas parade yesterday. It was, it was great to come together as a, a community and just kind of usher in the, the Christmas season. Um, of course, for us as followers of Christ, we, we come into this Advent season, this Christmas season, uh, looking back and looking ahead. And, and as Christians, there's so much in the Scripture that helps us to do this. But even just in our culture, there's so many things like Christmas parades and, and Christmas movies, things this time of year that just remind the world uh, that this is the Christmas season. And so, for example, there's been uh, Christmas movies on for weeks now. There'll be many more to come in the following days. And I'm sure we all have our, our favorites that we like to watch. Um, I enjoy kind of those classics, It's a Wonderful Life and White Christmas. And uh, one I've mentioned before, particularly my favorite, uh, is A Christmas Story. Uh, just, just out of reference here, has anyone here not seen A Christmas Story? Don't even raise your hand because I'll sh- Pastor Matt, let's pray for him. We'll have a special service afterwards you know the thing about that is i mention it every single year in a sermon so now it's just rebellion that he won't watch this most wonderful christmas movie of all time but um i I love a christmas story part of it's because a christmas story came out in 1983 and it was about a nine-year-old boy who wanted a bb gun for christmas and in 1983 i was a nine-year-old boy who wanted a bb gun for christmas And much like the character in that movie, uh, I had, and still have, by the way, a mother who believed then and still believes that I will shoot my eye out. And so uh, I didn't get the BB gun for Christmas then, and I still resent that. But anyways, uh, the the movie, if you've seen it, everything's built around that. Everything's built around this nine-year-old boy, Ralphie, who wants the BB gun for Christmas, and, and everything that happens in the movie is about that. And so everything culminates on Christmas morning uh, because it's then that they open up all the presents and there's Christmas paper everywhere and lo and behold that there's no BB gun and so they're sitting on the couch later that day and mom and dad are kind of reminiscing about Christmas and Ralphie's sitting there kind of you know you can tell disappointed didn't get what he really wanted and it's about that time that the father uh, points out this gift that's kind of hidden in the corner and you know at that point what's in the box. He, he goes over, he gets the box, and lo and behold, it's, it's the BB gun. And, and then he almost shoots his eye out. But that didn't help my argument with my mom, by the way. Uh, but he, he gets this gift, and, and what happens, and what they do so well in that movie is, is everything's just kind of built up to that point. And for a moment there, you almost think it's not going to happen. For a moment, it's almost as if everything the movie was about is, isn't going to happen. It's not going to come to fruition, that they almost miss it. And when I watch that, I think about how that illustrates so much of really Christmas in our culture today. That we go through all the motions, that we have all the paper on the floor, and we're sitting there on the couch, and so often we, we've really missed what this Advent season is all about. I have no doubt that if today we did some type of Christmas quiz, went around the room and said, what's Christmas all about? I have no doubt that most, if not all of us, would get the right answer. That Christmas is about Jesus. That Christmas is about the birth of Christ. That Christmas is about uh, the eternal Son of God, uh, the incarnation coming in flesh. But, but really, the, the question I believe we need to ask isn't just what is Christmas about, but we need to ask, well, why is it 
that Jesus sent his son into, uh, that God sent his son Jesus into the world. Why did Christ have to come? Well, why this time of year when we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Why do we have the birth of Jesus in history? Why is this such a significant event in salvation history? And I believe that's very much what the writer of Hebrews wants us to consider in Hebrews 10 when he's speaking here of Christ coming into the world. And so, as we come to this second Sunday of Advent, I just want to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at that question. Why did Jesus come into the world? And what do we see about that in this passage? Beginning with the first point there in your outline. Uh, why did Jesus come into the world? Jesus came into the world to take away sins. He came into the world to take away sins. Again, I think this is a fundamental truth that, that most of us understand, but there's, there's so much depth to it in this passage. Notice what the writer does. He, he contrasts here again the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, if, if you're not familiar with that, if you haven't been with us, essentially what we're talking about is this. Uh, in salvation history, in the Old Testament, there was a time in history when God's people were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years and they cried out for God to save them and to deliver them. And so God sent Moses there to Egypt as the deliverer. He, he rescues God's people and then through miraculous acts, through many plagues, God sets His people free out of Egypt and then He tells them He's going to take them to the promised land. And so on this journey towards the promised land, he gives them his law. This is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. He speaks directly to Moses and he gives, for example, the Ten Commandments. And he gets much more than the Ten Commandments. And he tells them, this is how you are to live as a people. And this was a, a conditional covenant. In other words, God said, if you do this, I will do this. If you obey me, then I will bless you. If you disobey me, then I will curse you. It was a conditional covenant. And if you know the story of God's people, you know that they weren't very good at obeying, that, that we struggle with obedience today as well. And so, while God was perfectly faithful, they were not. And so that's why the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that, that many of them never made it to the promised land. Why? Because they disobeyed God. And so all along the way, God's laying this groundwork for something better. He's helping them to see that there's a new covenant coming. One that's not based on man's faithfulness, but it's based entirely on God's faithfulness and the faithfulness of Christ. And so what the writer of Hebrews has done has shown us what that is. It's the new covenant in Jesus. That our journey to the promised land as followers of Christ is now secured by the faithfulness of Jesus. That we are saved not by our obedience, we're saved by Christ's obedience. Now, we still need to obey, we'll get to that. But that obedience is in response to this salvation and this saving work. Not in order to try to earn that saving work and that salvation. And so in this new covenant, he tells us and reminds us, okay, the old covenant, the law, that was a shadow of a reality that was coming. Now, think about that for a moment. What, what is a shadow? A shadow is a, a reflection. You might think about if you're, you're standing on the side of a building and there's something or someone coming around that building and you can't see them yet, but the sun's behind them and you can see their shadow. Well, what does that shadow tell you? Well, it, it may tell you things like whether this is a person or an animal. 
It may tell you whether they're tall or short. It may give you general information about what's coming, but there's a lot of details you don't have. For example, if you can tell from the shadow it's a person, you may not be able to discern whether it's a man or a woman. You may not be able to discern what, what the, or you certainly couldn't tell what the skin color is or their facial features. There's, there's so many details you'd have no idea about. You just have vague generalities from the shadow. But the shadow would be pointing you towards the reality. So how does that apply here? Well, the writer reminds us here that, that the law was a shadow. So the law taught us some very helpful things about God's holiness and about sin and about offerings for sin. But, but the law as a shadow wasn't sufficient. It didn't give us all the details. It, it could not save us. It was pointing towards the reality that would come. So what do we learn from the shadow of the law? Well, God's people from the law learned about sin. They, they learned what was right and they learned what was wrong. In fact, we, we still learn those things from the law today. I've given the example many times. You may find yourself uh, driving through an unfamiliar place at some point and you're just kind of zooming down the road there and maybe you're doing 65 miles an hour because the, the speed limit was 65 and then you come into a town and before you know it, uh, the speed limit's dropped to 35 and you didn't realize it and you're still doing 65 and then you see that sign. And for most of us, when we see that sign, what do we do? We, we apply the brake. We slow down. Why? Because in that moment... When we read the law, it makes us aware that we were disobeying. We may not have known it before then. Now certainly, you can disobey the speed limit and know that you're doing it, but, but there's times when that law reminds us. In fact, there's times when they actually have posted consequences of breaking the law. That there might be a sign underneath that speed limit that says, if you litter, there's a $500 fine. So what the law does is it helps us to see when we're doing something wrong. And the law even helps us to see what the consequence of our wrong behavior is. And that's what the Mosaic Law did for God's people. It helped them learn as they're coming out of this pagan land in Egypt. And as God's taking them to the land of promise, God's taking them out of Egypt, and He's taking Egypt out of them. He's showing them these things that you may have considered, okay, these are wrong behavior, these are sins, and here's the consequence for your sin. And nothing reminded God's people more of that than the sacrificial system that God put in place under the Old Covenant. Because they were reminded every time an offering was made for their sin that they were sinners. They were reminded every time an offering was made that there was a consequence for their sins. And what the writer here helps us to see is that as much as they were reminded of those things, they also had such a general vague understanding that they realized Wait, this can't actually save us. But it was pointing them towards Christ who would save them. And that's why the writer makes it clear that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. It was a shadow that pointed people to the reality that Jesus would indeed come and that He would be the sacrifice that would take away sins. In fact, this is what the Scriptures teach us about the Incarnation and teach us about Jesus. That He came into the world to deal with sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, You know that He, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. Yet in Him, there is no sin. And here we see just the, the beautiful truth of the Gospel. The Gospel teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Romans 3.23 and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. 
So every one of us in this room this morning, we are all sinners and we all deserve a consequence for our sin. Jesus, the Bible tells us, the eternal Son of God who came in flesh, He lived a perfect life in obedience to the Father. He never sinned. But He went to the cross. Why? To die in our place and pay the penalty for our sins. This is what the Gospel teaches us. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so the foundational truth of the Gospel the foundational truth of why we celebrate Christmas, why we celebrate this Advent season, is that Jesus came into the world to deal with our sin and pay the penalty for our sin. But that does not happen automatically. God says we need to respond to the truth of the Gospel in order to have this be effective for us in our life. We need to repent and we need to trust in Christ. And so as you, you think through things right now, can, can you think of a time when you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus? I'm not saying a time when you just started to believe Jesus was Lord, but, but can you remember a time in your life when you came to understand the gospel truth and you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus? In Romans 10 we read, if you'll confess Jesus as Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a saving act that happens when you come to an understanding that Jesus died in your place on the cross and you confess Him as your Lord. That means you confess to God, I want Jesus to call the shots in my life. And friends, that, that is fundamentally, I believe, the greatest challenge to people responding to the Gospel. It's not intellectual belief. We live in a culture where we think, well, if we could just convince people, just give them the right answer. I don't think that's it. I think that people can be convinced intellectually of so much about the gospel, but the greatest challenge is for a person to confess Jesus Christ as Lord because we like to call the shots in our life. But the gospel tells us that in order to truly be saved, we need to bow the knee to Jesus. We need to have Jesus be in control of our life. And not just that, we should want Jesus to be in control of our life. We should have a desire for Jesus to be in control of our life. That's what happens when the truth of the gospel permeates our hard hearts. We want this and we desire it. And we rejoice in the truth that Jesus came into the world to take away our sins. Not just that, we also see point two. That Jesus came into the world to do the Father's will. To do the Father's will. The writer of Hebrews here includes a, a quote from a passage. He's actually quoting here from Psalm 40. Now if you go back in your Bible and read Psalm 40, you'll find that Psalm 40 is a psalm of David. And in Psalm 40, uh, David is speaking these words to the Lord of himself. These are things that David is rejoicing in. And so David is saying of himself what we see here. You know, sacrifices and offerings that you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. And, and David is writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
But what the writer of Hebrews helps us to see is that these things are messianic, meaning they're not just true about David, but they were pointing forward to the Messiah. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, he attributes these things to Jesus. Which there again, it speaks so much of the inspiration of Scripture and how this is all God-breathed and this is all God's Word, that this is true of David, but it's pointing forward to the Messiah and it's teaching us about Jesus. And what does it teach us about Jesus? Well, it teaches us very clearly that the sacrifices of bulls and goats were not able to deal with man's sin. It teaches us that Jesus understood that He came in the flesh to deal with sin, that God had prepared a body for Him. It's a good reminder for us when we get our Christmas cards and when we look at our nativity displays that that child that was born in a manger went from the cradle to the cross that He lived a perfect life in obedience to the Father, that He lived a perfect life obeying the will of the Father, and according to the will of the Father, He went to the cross and He died for our sins. And in doing all these things, He was perfectly faithful and perfectly obedient. In fact, the writer of Hebrews attributes from that psalm this statement to Jesus in verse 7, Behold, I, Jesus, have come to do your, the Father's, will. Jesus came to do the Father's will. And we don't just see that in Hebrews. We see that throughout the Gospels. In fact, John records in John 6.38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now, it's important that we remember here, this isn't saying that Jesus had a will that opposed the Father's will. Jesus is not saying here, well, well, really, God, my will was to go over here and do things completely opposite of what you want me to do, but I, I guess since you want me to do this, this is what I'll do. No, Jesus fundamentally came to do the Father's will, not because He opposed it and had to choose it, but because He was sent by the Father for this very purpose. And in doing this, He shows us what we should do. That, that our desire should be to do the will of God. Now, unlike Jesus, we are born with a will that does oppose the Father. We read in the Scriptures, there's none righteous, not even one. No one wants to please God. Our, our nature, our flesh, is opposed to the things of God. That's why we need a, a new heart. We need God to, to, to work in us. and We need to be born again. Then we have a new desire to please God. A heart to please Him. A desire to follow His will. And where do we see that perfectly? We see that perfectly in Jesus. Especially see it on the eve of His crucifixion where Luke records in Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus crying out, Father, if You're willing, remove this cup from Me, but nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. Again, Jesus' will was not opposed to the Father, but Jesus understood as truly God and truly man, He knew what He would endure on the cross. And His desire was to glorify the Father. His desire was to do the will of the Father. He came in the flesh to take away the sins of man, and He knew what that would require, but He cries out to God, God, if there's any other way I can please You and do Your will, I'd like to do something other than what's about to happen here. He knew what was coming. And yet, what does He say? Not my will, but Your will be done. I mean, think about what a contrast this is. 
this new covenant sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Think about what a contrast that is to those old covenant sacrifices. You put yourself back in the old covenant in the Old Testament. It's time for the day of atonement. It's time for you to offer a sacrifice for an offering to be made on behalf of you and your family and your sin. You go out to your herd, and according to the Scriptures, you would choose that, uh, that animal that was without blemish, that the purest and the best from your herd. You chose them. They didn't volunteer. <laughs> there was no raising of the hands. There were no bulls or goats saying, yeah, I'll go down to the tabernacle and be slaughtered. No, no, you chose that sacrifice and you took it to the tabernacle or temple to be offered on your behalf. It did not go willingly. You took it there. You, you chose it. And yet, what do we see in Jesus? Jesus went willingly. Jesus chose to go to the cross for our sins. The Scripture tells us very clearly in John chapter 10, Jesus, speaking of laying down His life, He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He went willingly to the cross. And why? To die for the sins of many. That's what the writer of Hebrews reminds us of in Hebrews 28. Christ having been offered to bear the sins of many. And why did He do this? Because this was the Father's will and His primary concern was to do the will of the Father. So let me just ask you a very clear question this morning. Do you desire to do God's will? Do you desire to do God's will? And as a pastor, I have conversations with people about God's will all the time. And often they're about big life choices, uh, who you should marry or what job you should take or, or big life decisions. And pastor, I just need to help and I need to understand. I want to do God's will. But, but really so often what we're saying there is I don't want to make the wrong decision. <laughs> I want to make the right decision. I, I don't want to marry the wrong person. I want to marry the right person. I don't want to take the wrong job. I want to take the right job. And so often when we're asking those questions, if we're really honest, there, there's a selfish pursuit there because we want to be in a good marriage and we want to be in a good job and we don't want to be financially at risk and we want things to succeed. And so so often we've attributed this question, God, what, what is your will? We, we use that language but really what we're asking is, how can I be happiest? What's the decision that involves the least amount of risk? How can I not mess this up? Well, that, that's very different than truly asking the question, God, what is your will? Because when we ask that question honestly, then we realize the will of God might be that which puts us at the most risk we realize the will of God might be that which brings us the most suffering. We realize that the will of God might be that in which we find ourselves in a situation where it's not what we would have chosen for ourselves. And yet we see in God's sovereignty and His plan that these things are best and ultimately they are for our greatest joy because they please the Father and we take joy in that. But the Scripture tells us so often what God's will is. And we need to look to the Scripture to know God's will because our flesh is opposed to God's will. 
And even as those who have been born again and been given a new heart, we still so often we, we find ourselves lingering towards those things of the flesh. That, that love of the world. We need to be reminded from passages like Isaiah 53, verse 6, that all like sheep we've gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way. We need to be reminded from texts like 1 John chapter 2 that, that our heart is bent on loving the world and things of the world. And so that then we might see that, that our heart needs to have a desire to do the will of God, to, to pull away from these things and, and to trust in God and to do His will. Is that a concern to you? Not just about who you marry and what job you take. That do you honestly have a concern this morning to do the will of God, knowing that's what will please God and glorify God the most? And you may say, well, yeah, I want to do that, Pastor, but how do, how do I know what God's will is and all these particular things? Well, we look to the Scripture. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16-18. through 18, This is the instruction. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what is God's will clearly in this passage? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. So when something good happens in your life, when you have good news to share, what are you to do? The Scripture says you're to rejoice. You're to praise God for that good thing. You're to pray. You're to pray to God about that good thing. You're to give thanks to God for that good thing. But when something bad happens, when you face suffering and trials and calamity, what are you to do? You're to rejoice. You're to pray. And you're to give thanks. Now, hear me, friend. That, 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 that's not a health and wealth gospel. That doesn't, that doesn't mean turn that frown upside down. That doesn't mean fake it till you make it. No, that, that means we rejoice in our sufferings because we know there's a day coming when all suffering will end. And it means we pray without ceasing because left to ourselves and our suffering, we will be overwhelmed and overcome. But we pray that God might strengthen us in those moments to praise His name and to give Him glory no matter what may befall us. It means we give thanks. Because the Scripture says in our sufferings we then can consider the sufferings of Jesus Christ who did what? Suffered on our behalf that we might be saved. We take great joy because these sufferings remind us of the great salvation God has brought us. This is what it means to do God's will. And we see this perfectly modeled in Jesus who came to do God's will. And point three, Jesus came into the world to make us holy. He came to make us holy. Verses 8 and 9, again, there's a reminder here that Jesus does away with the need for sin offerings year after year because He has made the final and perfect offering for sin. He comes to take sin away and to do the will of the Father. And in doing God's will and taking away sin, the writer tells us here in verse 10 that He is able to make us holy. Again, look at verse 10 there. He says, And by that will, that this will of God that Jesus perfectly obeyed, by that will we have been sanctified. That means we've been cleansed 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And this is a note here, just a distinction. If you look ahead to verse 14, we'll, we'll come to this more in coming weeks, but just for now, verse 14 he says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So he says you've been sanctified and you're being sanctified. Well, which one is it? Well, it's both. And much like we looked at salvation, you're, you're being saved, you will be saved, you are saved. Well, here, you're being sanctified, you are sanctified. Well, what does that mean? Well, again, sanctification is being made more and more into Christ's likeness in your life. It's, it's seeking to follow God's will more and more each day. It's moving away from sin more and more each day. It's, it's repenting and turning to Christ day after day. Sanctification is the process. We might refer to it as spiritual growth and maturity in our life. And what is God's Word saying here? Well, verse 10 is saying of sanctification that we can have complete assurance of our salvation because in the eyes of God the Father, we have been cleansed. So, to consider this for a moment. When, Jesus look, or when God looks at you and I, he, he sees Jesus. He sees us covered by the blood of Jesus. So, so you go home today and... And let's say you don't have the best day after church. Let's say the preacher goes a little long. I'll try not to, but this story might make me. The preacher goes a little long, and the kids are hungry, and, and you're getting kind of grumpy, and so you get to the restaurant, and now it's already crowded, and whatever it was you wanted to eat, they don't have any more of, and your waiter or waitress isn't very good, and you never get a refill, and you just start getting grumpier, and the kids are getting sassier, and you know, I'm never going to take you out again, and y'all just fussing at each other, and... You get in the car and you go home and you want to take a nap, but then when you get home you realize the dishwasher's leaking and now you've got to fix the dishwasher and on and on and on and on. And maybe when that happens, you don't remember the words of the wise preacher that day who said rejoice always and give thanks always. And maybe you remember the example of that preacher who gets really frustrated at situations like that and, and you just kind of lose it. And maybe you just Maybe you just say terrible things. Maybe you think terrible things. Maybe you take that wrench and throw it through the wind. I don't know what you do when you get mad, but, but you just lose it. And then your child comes up to you about an hour later and says, Mom, Dad, Uncle Lon, are we going to do our, our Bible reading tonight, our Advent study tonight? And you open up the Bible and you just feel completely worthless. Because you're like, man, how can I teach somebody about the Scripture, and yet look at what I just did, and look at what I just said. And maybe nothing like that's ever happened to you, but, but that's my life. And let me tell you what gives me the greatest comfort in the world. That when God looks at this failing, fumbling person, He sees His Son, Jesus Christ. And He sees the perfect faithfulness of His Son. And He sees me covered by the blood of Jesus. And friend, that does not then compel me to go live like a wild person. That compels me to want to please the Father and to want to walk in holiness. It's the assurance of knowing that my sins are paid for. It's the assurance of knowing that I can stand in the holy presence of God one day. Not because I had it all together, but because Jesus Christ died in my place and I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. 
We have been sanctified. We have been cleansed. That's what the Scripture is telling us. But it's also telling us something with that. Verse 14, we are being sanctified. And so when we lose it by the grace of God, maybe in 2020, we'll lose it a little bit less. And when we trust in Him, and when we read His Word, we don't try harder to earn something. No, we are compelled and we desire. Why? Because we have joy in pleasing our Heavenly Father. Joy. We want to do His will. Some of you grew up in homes and are in homes where you have, you've had good dads. Now, I just say that because some of you have grown up or in homes where you've got worthless dads. But some of you, you know what it is to have a father who loves you and they've told you they love you and they've tried hard and they've done well. And as a child, there's those moments you can look at where you desire to please them. You want to make them happy. You take joy in their joy. Maybe it's when you're a little kid and you make that card and you color it and you make them a gift. You just want them to be pleased in what you've done. You want them to take joy in you because you're their child. And friends, that's a picture that by God's grace He's given us of what it is to be a child of God. Our desire should be to bring joy to the Father, to glorify the Father in all we do. And friends, there's no greater joy than that which comes through obedience. And seeing God make us more and more holy, make us more and more the image of His Son. And that's why Jesus came into the world. He came to take away our sins, to die in our place. He came to make us holy. And that should give us great joy. Not just because of what He has done, but because of what He will do. So as believers... As we go through this Advent season, we, we look back with joy on what Christ has done. But we also look ahead with joy to what Christ will do. And we need to be reminded of that. Because so often at Christmas, we, we do a lot of looking back, but sometimes we don't look ahead. In fact, sometimes when we look ahead, we just look to the things of this world. The things we want to do, the things we want to experience, the things we want to see. But as a follower of Christ, that which we should desire the most is the second coming of Christ. Our prayer should be that of John's in Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And we should long for it and we should take joy in the knowledge that is coming. Like one of the hymns that we sing this time of year, Joy to the World, is based in that very truth. We often sing it thinking about the first coming, but, but actually when that, that hymn was written, it was a lot more about the second coming than the first. Now the hymn is based on Psalm 98, And it says this in part, Psalm 98, beginning in verse 7, Let the sea roar, and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. When Isaac Watts read this, him, he was overwhelmed at the thought of what was to come in the coming of Jesus. And so he wrote, Joy to the World, reflecting on the first coming, but looking ahead to the second coming. And when you think about the words in Joy to the World, well, that makes a lot of sense. We don't sing in Joy to the World about Christ getting rejected by the world. We sing about the earth receiving her king. 
Well, that's going to happen in the second coming. And when we sing uh, Joy to the World, we, we reflect on what Jesus did and how He died on the cross for our sins, but we still live in a world presently where there are sins and sorrows and they abound, but we sing Joy to the World because there's a day coming when sins and sorrows will cease. There's a day where we talk about as far away from the curse, separated from the curse, separated from the fall, where Christ makes all things new. There is a day coming for those in Christ Jesus when we will know what it is for Christ to rule over all the earth. And we should take joy that that day is coming. And we should long for it. And if we don't, then today is an opportunity like each Lord's Day is to repent of whatever selfish desires we have, whatever sinful inclinations, whatever it is we are pursuing apart from Christ, to turn from those things and to turn to Jesus. Today is an opportunity, if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never experienced the realities of the first coming, if Jesus has not paid the debt of your sin because you've not repented and trusted in Him, then this is an opportunity to do that, to trust in Jesus and to long for His coming. And so if you would stand together as I pray for us, as we offer a time of response, as we sing about the wonderful mystery of the gospel and what has been accomplished, and as we look ahead to what is coming. You would pray with me. Father God, we thank You for Your Word and for the truth and for the reminder that we so desperately need in this hurried, busy season. Help us to pause and consider. Lord, I pray that every person here would ask the question, have I trusted in You? Have I repented and placed my faith in Jesus? And if there's anyone here who cannot say yes to that, I pray that today they would. I pray they'd experience the truth of what your word says, that today is the day of salvation. All have sinned and fall short of your glory, and the wages of sin is death. But you demonstrate your love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if we will confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Father, would you save some today? I pray as well, Lord, for those who are here who have been saved, but perhaps they find that they're not seeking your will, that they are selfishly seeking their own will. And maybe they've asked that question with big things, but maybe in little things and just daily things, they're not seeking to please you at all. They're just pleasing themselves. Lord, help us to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.